From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. I'm Erin Demo, and I'm currently serving on our session here at First Pres. Please join me in the call to worship. All creation holds its breath. The time is almost here. The heavenly choir of angels waits for its cue to sing. Excitement is all around us. Prepare your hearts. The grace of God takes on human form. Good news. Emmanuel, God with us, comes to us. We gather to make ready our hearts for the coming of Christ, our hope, our love, our joy, and our peace. Friends, let us worship God. Our first lesson this morning is from the fifth chapter of Micah. It can be found on page 815 in the Old Testament of your pew Bibles. Hear now God's word. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here again, the word of the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me and his holy name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, would you break open this ancient word to us this day so that we would be different people, new people, from the ones that walked into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the world has been waiting with great expectancy, with abundant anticipation. People have kept watch as they have counted down the days. And finally, finally it has arrived. Not the fourth Sunday of Advent, 
but the theatrical release of Star Wars 7, <laughs> The Force Awakens. As a child of the 1980s, the Star Wars franchise was something I not only grew up on, but it was actually something that shaped my childhood understanding of what was possible in the world. Now, for those of you that can't tell the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars, and you know who you are, <laughs> or for those that don't resonate with the hype surrounding the release of this new film or simply do not care, let me just spend two minutes on this and tell you why I think the Star Wars franchise has been so popular for the past 38 years. I think the reason it's been so popular, while, why it has captured the attention of so many around the world, is because it's primarily a story about an orphan boy, a nobody, really, that suddenly finds himself at the center of a saga of epic proportions. He discovers that he has a lead role to play in this story. Luke Skywalker is his name, and he is an underdog who, despite his status, has access to something great, has access to a power beyond his imagination, a power called the Force. And this Force will infuse his life with meaning and with purpose as he joins the outgunned and outmanned powers of good against the evil Darth Vader, the Emperor, and their galactic empire. We root for Luke Skywalker because at some level, we see ourselves in him. We too long for meaning and purpose. We too may have felt along the way that we have been abandoned or that we are alone in this big world trying to find our place in it. Maybe we want to understand our origins or our history, where we've come from. We long to be part of something bigger than ourselves. From another angle, we root for Luke Skywalker for the same reason that we root for Harry Potter, another character from a highly successful and lucrative franchise. Potter, interestingly enough, is also an orphan, and he lives under the harsh rule of his aunt and his uncle. He discovers, however, early on in those books that he is special, that he actually has a mission that he has something to do in the world, to bring something of good into the world. In fact, even to defeat evil with that good. We root for Luke, and we root for Harry, and we root for Cinderella, and we root for Katniss, and we root for these underdog heroes because in them we see what is possible. And we will rejoice in their victories as we imagine that victory, as it was for them, can be ours too. Well, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we meet an original underdog once more. She is a poor teenage peasant girl named Mary. This Mary discovers that she has an extraordinary purpose 
as she is thrust into the center of God's cosmic plan to reconcile and redeem and to save the world. This Mary has been tasked to do something that no one else has been asked to do, to literally bear the Christ child into the world, into human history. She has been favored. She has been chosen. God's choice of Mary indicates the arc that the larger gospel plot line will continuously follow. God is turning things upside down and inside out. The way God will save is not through military might or savvy political prowess, but through sacrificial and servant love. Expectations are turned around, are put away as each page turns in the gospel story. God's mission will look different and distinct from the world. And it will look different and distinct from what the world would expect. In a world where the arrogant win, where the mighty control, where the rich rule the day, Mary belts out a subversive song that flips the script. God, she sings, will scatter the arrogant. God will pull down the mighty. And God will send the rich away empty-handed. But that's not all God will do. God will also exalt the lowly. God will fill the hungry and take the hand of the oppressed people of God and lead them into a new day of salvation. As I said just a moment ago, Mary's song is part of a larger gospel plot line that will consistently reverse what is expected. And this narrative will reach its pinnacle. It'll reach its climax in this child whose birth we celebrate this week. It'll reach its pinnacle in the one called Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. This upside down and inside out kingdom is fully embodied by Christ's ministry. After all, his ministry was marked by a last shall be first and a first shall be last kind of mentality. His ministry was one of humble service and self-sacrifice, not haughty self-promotion. He takes up a cross, not a throne. He's obedient to the will of God, even, says the scriptures, to the point of death. But catch this. See how this plot line in the choice of Mary unfolds again in the choice of Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world. The scriptures tell us that, that God also highly exalted him, giving him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, friends, in the story of God, the underdog is victorious. In the story of God, the underdog is victorious, which naturally begs a question. What about us top dogs in church this morning? What about the others Mary sings about? What about the arrogant that God scatters, the mighty that God pulls down, and the rich that God sends away empty-handed? This, friends, is one of the sharpest and most difficult segments of Advent texts because at least in our North American and larger Western contexts, there are a lot of top dogs that will hear this story read in church today. And as much as we might want to identify ourselves 
with the underdog. And to be sure, many top dog narratives do in fact have humble beginnings, have humble starts that are marked by hard work and and a little bit of luck that have produced power, that have produced wealth in the world. Still, it doesn't change the fact, no matter how one has gotten there, it doesn't change the fact that the arrogant, the mighty, and the rich are named as the ones that God will scatter, that God will pull down, and that God will send away empty-handed. It is a more than difficult word for the top dog. What is more, if the angel's proclamation to the shepherds, we'll hear that again this Thursday, that proclamation that says, behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people, emphasis on the word all, the top dogs in the room may be left wondering if this is good news for all people, what about the top dogs? Where is the good news for me as I'm scattered, as I'm brought down, as I'm cast out with nothing left in my hands? It's a difficult word for all of us. I'm convinced that the gospel is true. I'm convinced that the angels had it right when they announced that the good news of the Christ child is for all people. Therefore, we have to ask a follow-up question. Where is the good news for the arrogant? Where is the good news for the powerful and the mighty? Where is the good news for the rich? If this gospel is good news for all people, it has to have some good news for even the top dogs. So could it be, friends, that the good news for the one on top, for the one who has power, for the one who has great wealth, is actually a liberation of sorts from the lie that might and riches, or anything else for that matter, can save us apart from the power of God. Could it be that the good news for the top dog is an invitation to have our hands emptied from the things that we grasp tightly, that we believe ultimately give us meaning and purpose in our life apart from the choice that God has loved us, that God has died for us, and that God has called us to a new way of life in that grace. To open our hands, to actually be empty-handed so that God could give us something else by which we would define our lives. Could it be that the good news for the top dog is a freedom to participate in the gospel plot line. And the gospel plot line by stewarding that which God has put us in charge of, including might and influence and power and wealth. Might it be that the good news for us is, is that there is a new way of life for the powerful, and for the rich to participate in this trajectory of God lifting up the lowly. Even though Mary's song has a very strong word for the arrogant, the mighty, and the rich, the birth of the Christ child still remains, I am convinced, good news for all people, underdogs and top dogs alike. But the gospel plot line will require change. It will require transformation. It requires the arrogant and the mighty and the rich to submit to the supreme power of God in humility. It calls on us to be willing to give up our power for the sake of the lowly. It calls us to model the way of Christ by lifting up 
the lowly, by stewarding all that God has put us in charge of to be part of this larger gospel story that is good news for all people. This text is familiar for many of us. It produces many questions, some we've touched on, some more we won't have time to look at, but but here is one more that will take this sermon home. How should the lowly, how should the lowly live after, in the words of Paul Tillich, they accept the fact that they are accepted? I'm broadening this term of lowly here, that all of us are sinners in need of God's grace, and all of us, by the power of God's grace, have found favor with God. How should we, who were lowly, who were far off from God, who've been brought near to God, how should we live now that we've received this grace? Now that we've received this favor, now that that same grace has lifted us to new heights of fulfillment and faith, how should we live? History shows us some interesting things of what happens when the underdog becomes the top dog. You know what I mean. It's possible, in fact, it happens quite often that behavioral or ideological patterns are exchanged between the underdog and the top dog when those roles are reversed. When the lowly are lifted up, the underdog who was once subject to the top dog now might make the top dog subject to them. History is replete with examples where the oppressed become the oppressor where the dominated now become the dominant, and they impose modes of power that were once imposed on them. Is this not at some level precisely what happened when Constantine legalized and legitimized Christianity with the Edict of Milan in 313? I mean, think about it for a second. For the first 300 years of its existence, that's older than our nation, for the first 300 years of church history, The Christian church operated, to paraphrase my friend Shane Claiborne, as a peculiar, marginalized, and suffering community. 300 years, peculiar, marginal, and suffering. When Constantine made it the official religion of the empire, Christianity virtually overnight became popular, became credible, became triumphal and powerful. The church's peculiarity, its marginalization, its suffering are nowhere better evidence, I think, in the first 300 years of its history than in the life of the martyrs. Than in the life of the martyrs, those who are willing to die for this gospel plot line that radically changed their life. These men and women were resolute in their commitment to that good news and to that arc of of lifting up the lowly, that arc of, of bearing witness to the way that Jesus lived and loved in and for the world, which meant that they, they did not seek to conquer, they did not seek to curse, they did not seek to cut down even their enemies, friends, even their executioners. They prayed for forgiveness, a radical demonstration of the gospel that captured their heart and their mind. I've been thinking a lot about the early church martyrs, and I wonder what they would say about some of the forms of Christianity that have subsequently followed them into history. I wonder what they would think about the mass commercialization of Christmas, for example. 
But on a more serious note, I wonder what they would think of the ways the church, once lowly, but now elevated to this position of power and culture, the ways in which the church oftentimes times has, has lost sight or, or blatantly neglected this gospel plot line. I wonder what the martyrs would think about presidents from Christian colleges who encourage their students to carry guns on campus to shoot Muslims if they come on school property. I wonder what the martyrs would think of prosperity gospel Christians who justify greed and the hoarding of wealth, this obtuse materialism as signs of God's divine favor. I wonder what the martyrs would think of mainline Christians who sometimes gather in their exclusive holy huddles. Everybody looks the same and thinks the same and and acts more like a social or political club rather than a radical community that unabashedly proclaims to the whole world the good news of the gospel for all people. Here's the point. Divine favor that lifts up the lowly does not give any individual Christian or any church permission to utilize modes of power and dominance that are common to the world. God doesn't favor us so that we can be in charge. God doesn't favor us so that we can conquer. God doesn't favor us so that we can dominate. God favors us so that we can serve. The divine favor God extends to the birth of this Christ child and his life and his death and his resurrection, this good news exalts us. It reconciles us to God. We share in the victory of Christ, friends. That is the audacious claim that we rally around each and every Sunday when we remember that God elevated Jesus from the dead. But this grace and this favor would be outside of the gospel plot line if we used it to serve our own interests if we used it to dominate another person or another people group. For friends, this gospel plot line renounces violence. It's a gospel plot line that that loves God and not money. It's a plot line that lifts up the lowly and takes seriously our call to be witnesses of the gospel, not witnesses of some secular agenda. In other words, we're lifted up to live like the child whose birth we wait upon once more. We are lifted up so that we may stoop down and bear witness to the favor of God for all people. So brothers and sisters in Christ, this fourth Sunday of Advent, may we accept the fact that we are accepted, that we have indeed found favor and grace from our Lord God, top dogs and underdogs alike. But may we also accept the gift of the Christ child as an invitation, as it was for Mary, to live a life of obedience, of service, and humility for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of God's world. May it be so in this church 
and in our lives and all of God's people say, Amen. The good news is before us once more. Accept that you are accepted. Accept that you have found favor with the living God who has lifted each and every one of us up, top dog and underdog alike, so that we may participate in the gospel plot line that lifts up the lowly and bears witness to a life, a love that has been modeled in Jesus the Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our friend and our brother, and may his peace, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in him. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day of your life. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.